Philippians 1.27 reads this. There's only one verse for our passage today. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that when I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Let's pray. Father in heaven, once again we come before you, Jesus, our King and our Lord. We stand firm in you, O Lord. We stand in our unity in the gospel and the faith handed down to the saints once for all. And Lord, we ask that now your Holy Spirit be poured out here. Holy Spirit, we ask for your anointing. I ask for it upon myself, my mind, my heart, my lips. Use me as a mouthpiece for you, a vessel of honor, O Lord, to declare your praise. I pray our hearts would be tender and receptive, that you would unclog our ears, and we would have not just ears to hear, but hearts to understand, and that we would be doers of the word, Father, not just hearers of the word, but doers. Oh, Lord, we pray for a revival, we pray for an anointing, and we pray that you would shine light through this message in the midst of so much darkness in our day. I pray that we would see, oh, Lord, the great call to which we have. In Jesus' precious name, amen. amen. I don't know about you, but I have never sensed so much evil in the world as I have lately. We are living in dark times. And as I was talking to a brother yesterday, I guess you could say, depending on what time you live in, it was dark then too. No doubt Christians who lived during the, the deepest and darkest times of World War II must have felt that they were living in the end times. No doubt people who lived during the Reformation period when, when there was the 30 years war and, and uh, those who were committed to scripture were being imprisoned and tortured by inquisitors for the Holy Roman Empire. No doubt people must have felt it was awfully dark during those first three centuries when the church endured great persecution by a pagan empire that dominated the world and only sought to um, continue its evil designs. It may seem like evil wins sometimes, but at the end of the day, we know that God is sovereign. But in today's world, there just seems to be a universal degree of just a breakdown and disintegration of society. We are seeing this in all common ways. We're seeing wars and rumors of war, as the Lord said would happen in the last days, Matthew 24. But clearly what's happening in Palestine and Israel today is no small matter. I, I'm not desensitized yet, but when I put on TV and I hear of infants being beheaded, when I hear of and see videos of women being, uh, um, you know that they were recently brutally raped and they're unconscious and they're being dragged by their hair. And when these videos are on social media and on TV and you see the suffering and pain that people are enduring and the lives, the, the hundreds and thousands of lives that are being piled up of people who are being killed or injured. And we know that it's happening in Ukraine and Russia it, it, it's something, there's something to be said that this is wrong. There's evil in the air. There's death in the air. Here in America, we have experienced in the last five years, I would say, more turmoil than we've had maybe since the 60s. I think 68 was a horrible year in American history. 
but probably since the Civil War, our country has never been more divided. Our, our bipolar political system has pulled to the far left and pulled to the far right, with each side seeing themselves as good and the other as evil. Each side believing the other is wrong and they are right, and it has ripped the fabric of our nation apart. Fortunately, many of us sit in front of our TVs and we follow Twitter and are being spoon-fed the political talking points of our favorite party day in and day out. The Republican Party, which has the House majority, cannot even agree on a Speaker of the House. They're tearing each other apart, and in the words of one person, Speaker Scalise, who recently stepped down, he said, there's no unity in our party. We can't even find a Speaker I want out. Politicians care more about sound bites and interviews with their, cons with their constituents' favorite talk show hosts than the good of the country. And even within all of this, we see that within the church, it's no different. Families are tearing each other apart. Brother against brother, sister against sister. We see husbands and wives tearing each other apart. Divorce higher than ever. Parents and children fighting with each other. People won't even go to Thanksgiving dinners anymore because the divisions are so deep in families today over personal opinions, over political views. Then in the Christian church, we see it no different. We find the smallest and trivial areas of doctrine. We go on social media and we bicker and we argue and we tear people apart. There's no charity involved. We call people names and and it's just flat-out ugly. In our local churches, it's no different. Speaking to a pastor friend of mine, several pastor friends of mine throughout the country in the last year, each and every one of them has experienced some degree of division within their own churches, some among elder boards, some among their own members. One pastor I spoke to this week says, I'm so fed up, Bob, I'm resigning, handing in my resignation this weekend. And you know who sits by and laughs? Satan. He loves every bit of it. God is not honored in any of it. Unfortunately, as believers, especially in the Reformed camp, we often are highly opinionated, very dogmatic, and we don't seem to be able to engage very graciously with others who disagree with. We draw strong lines in the sand on anything and everything, and there's no place for unity. The question is, when people in the world are out there looking at us, do we give them anything different than what the world is doing? Do they see anything different? Do they, do they feel that they could come to church and have the peace and have the, the sense of stability and tranquility that that's not out there? Are we giving them anything different? Or are we worse? God is one. Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. The Lord is not divided against himself. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4, which corresponds with our text. It's a parallel text. And it speaks to this oneness of the Godhead that is to pour into the oneness of the church. Ephesians 4. Therefore, I, a prisoner of the Lord, verse 1, 
urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, very similar language, Philippians 127, that equal, that weight to, to your, your calling, your, the gospel in your life, with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to what? Maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body, there is one spirit, and just as you were called to, one hope that belongs to your call, and one Lord, and one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. God is one, cannot be divided. And if God is one, then his people cannot be divided. You see, when we reflect and maintain and are eager to strive for the unity of the church, and we strive to reflect the oneness of God. Unity isn't something that comes easy. It takes hard work. So going back to Philippians chapter 1, we see the language that Paul uses. He's writing to a church that is experiencing its own division itself. If you look in chapter 4, verse 2, he says, I entreat you, Odeon, I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life. We see that there's division there. We see in chapter 1, uh, Paul makes it very clear there are those who seek to undermine him. He says, I want you to know, brothers, what has happened to me in verse 12 has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and all the rest of them in imprisonment for Christ. And most of the brothers, having confidence in the Lord on my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing I am he put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, in that I rejoice." And so here we see that in the context of the early church, it was not easy to maintain the unity. It needed to strive for unity. It was a work. It was labor. And quite frankly, the early church had a lot to divide over. The Gentile Jew divide was the biggest one of them all. And yet we learn in Ephesians that in that great divide, it was the Lord who brought the two together. Look at me in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. Verse 14, rather. I'm sorry, verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ, you who are once far have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility." And so we see that the basis of unity and peace is the gospel. There can be no unity and peace without the gospel. In our men's thread, we had a discussion earlier this week about the war in, in, in Israel between Palestine and Israel. Can there ever be peace? Can a two-state solution 
be brokered. It's been attempted for years. There will never be peace in Israel until either both Palestine and Israel become Christians or until Christ returns. Because they're both fighting a war for their own agenda. There's never going to be agreement there, ever. The faith of the gospel is that which unites us. It's the basis by which we can agree with each other. You see, when Paul says, let your lives be worthy of the gospel, and he says only this, if there's one thing you need to know, let this be the reality, that our lives are of equal worth and equal weight to the gospel. The word axios there, where we get the English word axiom, it means literally to be of equal weight. When Paul's saying our lives should be of equal weight to the gospel. So what is the gospel about? The gospel is about God reconciling sinners to himself. The gospel is about we as human beings who are utter rebels against God, who have, who have defied him, who have rejected him, and who have sinned against him, who have tramped on his name, who have blasphemed him, who have cursed him, and who have lived in open rebellion for most of our lives, have been reconciled to him through the cross of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. The gospel message is that you and I are essentially at war with God. That's the gospel message. And that in this war, God made peace for us. And that peace was made because of the work of Christ. I want you to think about this because if you look in the Bible, we see in several places where God is referred to as the God of all peace, the God of Shalom. Romans 16.20 and 1 Thessalonians 5.23. The entire testimony of human redemption is the story of God making peace with sinful humanity. Uh, Christ, in his messianic reign, is referred to as the Prince of Peace, who ushers in an age of everlasting peace, Isaiah 9. When he was born, it was the angels who announced to the shepherds on the hill, peace on earth and goodwill toward men. And the gospel we preach in our spiritual warfare is the gospel of peace. That peace is between man and God. And that war between us and man and God must be ended. And the only thing that could satisfy God in his wrath and anger is the work of Christ, his son, bearing our sins on the cross, bearing our guilt, bearing the consequences, and making satisfaction through his blood. That's what the word atonement means. The word atonement means at one with. It means to become one with God, to be reconciled. Romans 5.10 says this, For if while we were enemies of God, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Colossians 1.19, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth, or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Peace didn't come cheap for God. The cost of peace cost him the blood of his son. It came at a great cost to God. So much so that if he's given us a son, what more will he withhold from us? But it becomes the basis by which we as Christians live in unity with one another. If we are with peace with God through Christ, then the call and the urgency to dwell in peace and unity with others is incumbent upon us. 
Christ is the supreme peacemaker. Through his death and resurrection, he has reconciled sinful man to God, and only because of him, peace is possible. Therefore, we must live in equal weight to that. So let's look at the two, the two affirmatives or imperatives here that Paul gives us in regards to how we carry this out, right? So Paul is saying in, in 127, live your lives worthy of the gospel, right? Only this, to live lives of equal measure and equal weight to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And how is that carried out? First, by standing firm in one spirit with one mind, and secondly, by striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Two things, two very simple things. Standing firm and striving. This, these are military words. These are military words. And when you and Paul uses military language often because, because we are the army of the Lord. We're, we're God's soldiers. We are good soldiers in the army of Christ. And, and really the battle, the real division in humanity is between good and evil, between darkness and light, between righteousness and unrighteousness. I remember some years ago having a good talk with a, a pastor friend of mine who's Arminian, and we were chuckling about all of the big battles Arminians and Calvinists have amongst each other, uh, particularly in down south, where some Arminians will go to the point of saying that all Calvinists are heretics, and some Calvinists will go to the point of saying we can't fellowship with Arminians, they're all heretics, and, and it becomes so ugly and brutal. And he and I sat and had coffee one day, and we said, you know what, I'm glad we're friends. We live in New York here. We're the minority. Everybody hates us because we're Christians. And so this difference that we have theologically, we can set aside because the bigger issue is here, we're one in Christ. They're the enemy out there, not us. They're the enemy. They're the enemies of the gospel. They're the ones who are at war with God. We've made peace with God. We're on the same team. I think so much what has destroyed America today is everything is politicized. I think politics dominate our culture so much, it's infiltrated not only to the minds of everyday Americans, but it's infiltrated the church. Everything in politics is a chess game, a, a battle of wits and, 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 and wordsmithing. I like sports. How many of you like sports, right? Football, baseball, you know why? Because you, when you play a sport, you're on a team. And when you're on a team, you work in, in harmony with one another. The goal is to win. Winning is for the team. We take a win for the team. And any player that's in it just for themselves usually gets kicked off the team. We're a team together. We work together. We work in this battle against Satan and against evil. Getting back to the standing firm in one mind, in one spirit. This is calling us not necessarily to the Holy Spirit, but, but when we talk about standing firm, and it says us in, in Philippians 4.1, we are to stand firm in the Lord. That's the spirit that we stand firm in, in, in our unity in the Lord. Um, there are so many verses in the Bible that talk about standing firm and, and what that means. For example, in Galatians 5.1, it says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Uh, 1 Corinthians 16.13, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Um, also, in, in like I said, Philippians 4.1, uh, 2 Thessalonians 2.15, Brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught to us, either by our spoken word or through the ministry of the gospel. And so we see here that this standing firm together is on the truth. It's, on, it's in the Lord. It's in our faith. It's in the gospel. 
And, and standing firm means making a stand against opposition. It means digging our heels in and knowing that what's going to come against us is from the enemy, and that's Satan. So, so what are... What are we standing for and what are we standing against? We're standing for the truth and we're standing against the attacks of Satan, the flesh, and the world. Those are the three biggest enemies we have. That's what our, that's what our standing is because that's what opposes us. Satan, the flesh, and the world are biggest enemies. All right? And I think we know this. Uh, Satan clearly would love nothing more. Satan tries to destroy the church from out to the outside, right? That's, that's one tactic. He has many tactics. Satan has a playbook. And, and, and if you think you know all the schemes of the devil, you haven't lived long enough, trust me, because even a Christian who's been around for 50 years cannot perceive all the schemes of the devil. The devil's clever. He's, and if he wasn't that clever, he wouldn't be around anymore. But, but Satan is very clever, and his, his works are, are very uh, uh, um, good, and they're insidious, and he knows how to confuse people. He knows how to uh, uh, disorganize people, disorient them. One of his attacks is obviously outward, right? He, you know, in churches in Nigeria, as you were sharing with me the other night, Kautume, how many Christians are, are facing uh, the idea of being violently persecuted, being murdered for the sake of the gospel. They go to church on Sunday and they don't know if their enemies are going to come there and butcher them and, and shoot them or, or knife them to death. Thankfully, we don't have those fears, at least not yet. But within the church, we find that oftentimes... Satan is clever. He uses his tactics of confusion and, and pride and anger and all kinds of issues to upset the church. Now remember, if we know Satan's playbook, it goes back to his, who he was. When Satan uh, at one time wasn't Satan, he was Lucifer. He was an angel in heaven. Ezekiel 28 says it was filled with beauty and wisdom. He was the chief cherub of heaven. When God created all the angels of heaven, Satan was... Previously, Lucifer was numero uno. He was the best. And Lucifer's pride caught up to him. And Lucifer felt, you know what? Maybe, maybe God isn't really God. Maybe I should be God instead. And he was able to deceive and to mislead one-third of the angels of heaven. Now, I want you to think about that. The angels of heaven, billions and billions, we have no idea the numbers of angels. It says in the book of Revelation, myriads upon myriads, which means billions upon billions. It's a countless number. One-third of the host of heaven who served God was able to believe Satan. And they revolted against God. And the archangel Michael cast them out and to the earth, and now Satan is the prince of darkness, the prince of the power of the air, the prince of this world, and as soon as he got to earth, he did the same exact thing. Satan's, Satan's plan is pretty, pretty obvious, right? He gets to Adam and Eve in the garden, and, and what does he tempt them with? Well, you know, do you really trust in God? Could, can you trust him? I don't know, maybe, maybe he, you know, did he really say that? Does God's word really say, you're not going to die? God just doesn't want you to be happy. He doesn't want you to know everything he knows. He wants it all for himself. And that was Satan's tactic. And so God created order in the universe, and the order was God with authority over man, man with authority over woman, woman with authority over the serpent. And guess what happened in the garden? The serpent, whose tactic is usurping authority, which he did to God in, in, when he, in his revolt in heaven, usurped the woman, the woman usurped the man, and the man usurped God. It was an inversion of authority. And so we see that this happens so often in the world. As I said last week, 
half of the problems we have in our world is that no one could ever submit to authority. We have uh, two political party systems that I think are so hell-bent on getting their way that neither could accept loss. I've said this recently, and I'll stand by it. If, if we have another Biden-Trump rematch, and I'm not even taking sides, don't try to read into my political mind. I'm just stating the fact of what I observe. If, if Donald Trump loses the election, we get a replay of J January 6th. It's going to be all hell breaking loose. They're going to say the election's stolen. If Joe Biden loses the election, they're going to claim the same thing. Something's fishy. There's a Russia collusion. There's something not right. Because neither side will accept loss. Leftists will burn down a city when they feel that they've been treated unfairly. And the right-wingers are following in suit and they will do the same thing if they have to. And that's what's happening all over the world. People will burn everything down if they can't win. When this happens in the church, it's... Absolutely horrific. We as Christians should never engage on that level. We should not be of a burn it all or win mentality in our politics, in the way we deal with our family members. I see this even among families and churches, people who should be one, people who, who are Christians or claim to be Christians fighting won't even talk to each other. And then we see it in the church. And we see it in the church. God gives gifts to the church. Ephesians 4.11, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, to build up the body of Christ. And so often the churches take the gifts of God and trash them. I've seen it so many times, it is, it is heartless. One church I know of in Rockland County took a young man right out of seminary. It was a church that was rife with division. They wanted me years ago, and I said, no way, I walked away. This thing was 2010, and they came after me. Uh, the guy said to me, he said, oh, the Holy Spirit's telling me where God's calling you to this church. And I said, well, the Holy Spirit's not calling me, brother. Um, I did not accept that call, and I'm glad I did not. They got a young guy who, about three years ago, when I sat with him, was, was twitching, was in a state of manic depression, and, and ready to never go to church again for the rest of his life. Chew it up and spit out. Brothers and sisters, we have to be on guard and stand firm against these things. The flesh, which is our greatest enemy. The flesh, I mean, listen, you can blame Satan for everything. Don't blame the devil. Most of our problems come right from within. Didn't Jesus say that? From the heart comes all sorts of evil. Galatians 5.19 described to us all the works of the flesh, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. I say, okay, we're good with that. But what about enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things of these? I warned you as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. It doesn't matter if you're in an orgy or you're an idolater, a sorcerer, if you're in the midst of a divisive spirit in a church, then you're just as guilty. And then finally, the world. If we look outside the church walls, we see the conflict, we see the chaos. And what are we doing? Are we different? Isaiah 48, 22 says this, there is no peace for the wicked. There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. The wicked are like the oceans. They toss to and fro. That's the world. 
When I got saved, I couldn't wait to get away from all that. In James 4, when, when James rebukes the church for all their quarrels and fighting among each other because they, they want and they can't have, you know what he calls them? He says, you adulterous people, don't you know friendship with the world is enmity with God? If you're a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. We've got to be different. The world, the flesh, the devil, this is their domain. But in the kingdom of God, it's not about eating or drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Our corporate witness to the church matters. Our corporate witness to the world matters, I should say. The world should look at us and see the opposite of what they have. We must stand together. Stand together against the temptations of Satan. Stand together against the works of the flesh and putting it to death through the Spirit. And we need to stand together to fix our minds on things above where Christ is seated so we may heavenly minded and not earthly minded. Thirdly, striving together side by side for the faith and unity of the gospel is not something that just comes. It, means, it, is, it is to be maintained. We strive. It means there's work. When I strive, it means I work hard. Any of you here married, does keeping a peaceful marriage just happen? Anybody, does it just happen in your relationship? No, it takes work. It takes striving. They say married life is a full-time job. So most of us have three full-time jobs because you have a full-time job at going to work, you have a full-time job maintaining the union of your marriage, and you have a full-time job raising your kids. So, so if you have a wife and kids, you are working 24-7. It never ends. And then you've got to work to maintain the unity in the church. So there goes another full-time job for you. This is where it takes effort. And the effort means it comes through dying to self. Look go back in Ephesians chapter 4, because Paul lays out the elements and the ingredients that contribute to maintaining the unity in the church. This does not come easy. It says in chapter 4, verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity in the spirit and the bond of peace. Maintaining the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace requires humility, it requires gentleness, it requires patience, it requires bearing with one another in love, and that requires dying to self. That's the one mind that unites us together, going back to Philippians chapter 2. That one mind is the mind of Christ. It is the mind that says we, don't put, we put the needs of others ahead of our own. John MacArthur says this. So Paul is speaking of unity basically on two terms, the spirit and mind. What do you mean one spirit? It's best to see this as an internal attitude, a kind of heart compactness, as one writer puts this, where we're all together like the book of Acts. This is the inner compactness of spirits of mind and heart solidly knit together in the love and harmony and unity that is Resist discord, disruption, distrust, and division, and it is one mind, literally one suke, the word for soul. Just another way to say the same thing. People criticizing one another, tearing into each other, condemning other people, labeling other people, attacking other people, shreds the body of Christ and devastates the testimony. We have to work hard to have unity, and work starts in our own hearts. 
We cannot have one mind and one spirit until we take responsibility in our own hearts and in the right place. End quote. It's always easy to point the finger, but it's not until we take personal responsibility that there can be unity. The gospel not only reconciles us to God, and that's what we have to understand, it reconciles us to one another. That was the basis of the unity in Ephesus when we talked about the Gentiles and Jews. These two people hated each other. Quite frankly, if you look amongst each other, if none of us were saved, how many of us would even be friends? Probably all come from different walks of life with different traditions and different ideas and different attitudes. There'd be very little to keep us together. What unites the people of God is the gospel. How do we strive? How do we, how do we fight for the unity of the church? By being a peacemaker. Because Christ is the ultimate peacemaker. I'm going to give you a few very practical suggestions here. And I say this not just for church life, but family life, your life at work, because I'm sure somewhere in your life you have conflict today. Number one, do not be contentious. Romans 12, 18 says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Live peaceably with all as much as it depends on you, if possible. Three different statements. First, we have to examine the idea if it's possible. Sometimes it's not always possible. There are some times where it's impossible to be at peace with certain people. And, and, and there's just sometimes you can't do nothing about it. Sometimes it's within the family, it's within your household, and that makes it even more difficult, which means you have to work even harder to promote unity and to protect and pursue peace. But the burden is on us that as much as it depends on us, we are to live peacefully. That means we are not contentious. It means we do not pour fuel on the fire. It means that we try to avoid and avert the conflict. First of all, it's in an active way. It means living in peace. It means, it means that we have to be gracious and, and, and we need to show charity to those who offend us. If there's one certainty in this life, you will be offended. And, and, and if you are sitting here and you're new to Grace and Truth Church and you're saying, oh, I'm, I'll never be offended here. I'll, I like it here. This is a new church. This is a great new church I found. Stick around long enough. You will get offended. I was a church member one time and I was offended and People offended me, and people still offend me. It happens. It's life. We're a bunch of sinners. Put a group of sinners in a room together. Over time, we're going to offend each other. The question is not if the offense comes. The question is how do we deal with the offense? When someone is rude or, or, or obnoxious or they, they didn't do something the way you liked or you feel like you're treated unfairly, do we react and retaliate? Do we show grace and forgive? Do we nurse grievances and grudges? Or do we seek peace and unity? Do we seek resolutions or do we seek to be right? Do we seek vindication? Or do we seek vivication in the life of Christ? In those ruptures, we know that it, as much of it depends on us. And so with that said, 
rather than seek to quarrel with people, we need to seek to be at peace. We need to avoid quarreling. Proverbs 17, 14, the beginning of strife is like letting out of water. Quit before the quarrel breaks out. Proverbs 29, 11, the fool gives full vent to his spirit, but the wise man holds it back. Proverbs 14, 26, one who is wise is cautious and turns away from evil, but a fool is reckless and careless. Proverbs 20, verse 3, it is an honor for a man to keep aloof from strife, but every fool will run into quarreling. And some of us, no doubt, are more hot-tempered than others by nature. I think from the womb, nature is more predominant than nurture. While it's true, some of us may grow up in homes where there's a lot of conflict and we learn to be people who are contentious. I can tell you for a fact in what I've seen in life, people who come out of the womb, who they are, nature is always stronger than nurture. You can grow up in the most peaceful home, and if you're a contentious person, you'll be contentious. You could be in the most conflicted home. If you're a peaceful person, you're going to be peaceful. But this is, we're not talking about nature. We're talking about the Holy Spirit. Because if you're a Christian, you're a new creation in Christ. You don't have to live a certain way. How you were born doesn't dictate who you become. When we become Christians, we become different people, and we can always do better. To just rest in this is who I am is to admit the failure of the transforming work of the Holy Spirit. You see, being a peacemaker means swallowing our pride, humbling ourselves, asking for forgiveness. It means letting go of bitterness and grievances and anger. Part of what destroys our country now in our both political systems is both political parties their whole game is politics of grievance. The Democrats have grievances against the Republicans. The Republicans have grievances against the Democrats. And we nurse those grievances so much that the people we whip up in our own constituencies hate the other side. But brothers and sisters, may, may, may I make it clear? There are times we are not going to succeed. There are times when peace will not be possible. There are times when we... We've done all we could do. I remember some years ago, uh, Tulian Chavidian and his wife had a ruptured marriage. He was a pastor of Coral Springs Church in Florida. Um, and uh, he took over the church there. Um, I forgot the name of the previous pastor. who used to be on TV years ago. And, and, and in that ministry, Tulian, who's the grandson of Billy Graham, uh, it came out that him and his wife were both, um, in, you know, had broken their marriage covenant. She was unfaithful to him. He was unfaithful to her. It had been hidden for a long time, and it finally came out, and it was, it was a disaster for the church. It was a disaster for the work of God. And Paul David Tripp got in there, and he, he counseled with them. And you know, who, who's better of marriage counselor than Paul David Tripp, right? They fly in the best down to Florida to sit down with Tulian and his wife. And he makes a public statement. He says, I've counseled with many marriages. And there are some times when there's just nothing left to be done. And divorce is the only alternative. There was no hope for that marriage. It was too far gone. So there are times when the pain and the hurt is so far gone. Or the disagreement so sharp that separation is the only alternative. Like Barnabas and Saul. They had a sharp disagreement, scripture says, was over Barnabas's nephew, he wanted the nephew to be in the band, and Paul's like, no way, I don't want him here. And it, it got nasty between them, and they separated ways, but they were friends in the end. And eventually, Paul says, I welcome John Mark. He's good, he's useful to the ministry. So 
Sometimes when we clash, we have to know when to, when to fight, when to give up, and when to make peace. We need to distinguish what are the issues we go to the mat on and when it's time to divide. 1 Corinthians 11, 18, 19 says this, For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Now, this is dealing with it, doctrinal issues. There are issues we must go to the mat on. An issue concerning the gospel, justification by faith, the Holy Trinity. These are areas we're going to the mat on. We're going to fight. Martin Luther was willing to die for that. Right? These are the issues that we say are worth the fight. It's all the other issues that we have to say, is it worth the fight? Secondary issues and tertiary issues in the church, preferences, opinions. There are times we're not always going to agree, but we have to have one mind for the sake of the gospel. Let me end with this. Pastor Chopo Mamba from the Faith Baptist Church in Zambia, he is one of the contributors for Nine Marks Ministries, writes an article about four ways people can tear down churches. And I want us all to, every one of us here, examine our hearts before the Lord and see how we could hurt the church. Number one is the armchair critic. And, he, and I quote him, armchair critics are bent on finding fault with what others are doing while doing nothing themselves. They're apathetic in the things that are going on and are disappointed when they see success. They're quick to condemn and slow to commend. They falsely place themselves as judge and you never hear them admit wrong. Cynics are never pleased nor satisfied. I always like to think of this as the Monday morning quarterbacking. Well, you know, he could have done better in that game if I was playing the football game. None of us are professional football players, that's for sure. Maybe Ed Moore is. I think Ed Moore would have a good reason to, uh, or Alec Millen. Two, the person who never comes to church. Non-attending members are an oxymoron. They don't want to serve and use their gifts to edify other believers. By not attending, they actually remove themselves from the platform where they can minister and be ministered to. Over time, they harm the unity and mission of the church. So if you're just not in the game, you're not coming, you're not contributing, you're hurting the unity of the church. Thirdly, members with a divisive spirit. And I quote, divisive people are often driven by the desire to be in charge. They want their opinions heard and implemented and near total agreement from everyone Divisive people expect you to consult with them about an issue, and if you don't consult with them in particular, they lash out. The ironic thing about people with a divisive spirit is that they sometimes have a sincere concern for the church's well-being. Jamie Dunlop sums it up perfectly. We rally support to get people to see things our way, and behavior like that, no matter the virtue of the original concern, quickly becomes factions and dissensions within the church. We must address discontentment carefully because it often bears the fruit of discord. Speaking to a pastor friend of mine, he made a good point recently. He said, the people who sometimes cause the biggest divisions in the church are the people that care the most. Because the people that care the most feel and really want the best for the church. But they go about it the wrong way. And fourthly, the gossip in the busybody. Meddlers often gossip. They're in the business of gathering information about people and their affairs with the purpose of sharing it with others. They have an inquisitiveness masked as care and concern when in actual fact, they simply cannot mind their own business. 
I often warn people, be careful what you share personal information with. Go to your pastors, pick a good friend that you trust. Don't spread all your seed to everybody in the church. It'll get around pretty quick. Let me conclude. I want to put light here on all this because the truth is, as Christians, we have hope. In our flesh, we're going we're gonna to fall into, we're going we're gonna to be tempted and have proclivities towards, towards this uh, um, aspects of our fallen nature. And because our culture that we live in is so factious and argumentative and dividing, that culture has seeped into the church. And so what I argue to you today, what I appeal to you and beg of you all today is to be countercultural, be different. We are the children of God and we're to reflect our heavenly father. And if God is the supreme peacemaker and if the gospel has united us to Christ who are sinners, please, I appeal to you today Reconcile yourself to God and to those who you are in conflict with. I'm not telling you to become flower children, but I am saying act like God's children. We live in a world filled with darkness and evil. Let us be the light that shines in that darkness. Let us be the place where people can see the difference and say, I want to be here. We all can contribute better towards peace and unity in our home life, in our church life, in our life with our friends and family. If we can't rise above the world, if we can't do better, if all we are reduced to is, is, is just sound bites on social media, why would anyone want to be a Christian? Let the gospel be the basis of our unity and our purpose that we stand firm and we strive together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you and praise you for this day. I thank you for your word. It is your word, not mine. And may it apply to all our hearts today. May we be humbled before you. Oh, Father God, we pray for the peace and unity, not only of our church, but every church in this area. I pray particularly for the churches of different pastors I've spoken to over the last few months and things that they've shared with me. You know who they are, Lord. We pray for the peace and unity of all the churches here in the States. Lord, from the church of Paul Washer down to, oh, Lord, hearing about division in, 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 among the, all of the Reformed evangelicals today, at Vody Bauckham writing a whole book on it. Oh, Lord, we pray that peace and unity would prosper among your people and that you would be glorified and that Satan would be abased. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand and we'll close in song.